Well, hello. It's good to be here with you guys at all four of the locations. We are part of an amazing church, right? An amazing church. There's four locations spread out through the Denver metro area. And, you know, uh, if you looked at the first century church, it really is very similar to the model of ministry that Pastor John and Pastor Chris are leading us into here at JFC because Paul would write his letters to the church, let's say, at Ephesus or Corinth. And what he was doing was not writing a letter to one particular church, but he was writing a letter to multiple churches within those cities. And so you guys, without knowing it maybe, walked into one of those four locations today and tethered yourself to a narrative that has been written for over 2,000 years now. And so it's my opportunity, my privilege to talk to you guys today about the church. So you ready? All right. Okay, let me pray, and uh, we'll just invite the presence of the Holy Spirit in here and uh, see if we can't communicate and understand more of what he has for us. So Heavenly Father, we come before you. God, we submit ourselves to you, and uh, we've all come from uh, different experiences and conversations uh, and have made our way into the church, a building, a gathering of believers. And uh, God, we just push the pause button right now. We open up our minds, we open up our hearts, and God, we ask that you would take notes that have been put together uh, by a teaching team, labored over and sweated over and prayed over, but God, we ask, ask now that you would breathe over those notes, that you would make them come alive, and Holy Spirit, that you would have your way in us today. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. amen. Well, uh, like I said, we are part of uh, what is called the church. And so I'm going to kind of take you back a little bit, speed through, tell you a couple of stories. And um, so, but what I want to do is I want to actually explain that word church. How did we get to that point? And on your notes there, you'll see that uh, church in the original Greek is called ekklesia. And so that was a word that uh, actually existed before the Christian church ever did exist. And so what does ecclesia mean? It means uh, ek, it's, out, it, it's formed out of two words, ek and kaleo, and ek meaning out and kaleo meaning called. And so you'll see in your notes that I'm going to take you through uh, three points here uh, under that uh, term for church and what we are. And it's we're, we're called out, we're called together, and then we're called for something. And so uh, you have joined and have come today uh, as part of a church that doesn't keep attendance. You didn't sign your name someplace. If you haven't been here for a couple of weeks, uh, we didn't pull you aside and say, hey, uh, you've actually run out of your skips and so we're gonna have to dock you a couple of grades, right? <laughs> you are always welcome. Anyone is welcome, from the first-time guest to the person who's been here nearly 16 years now, right? And so let's walk our way through this. This word originally, before it was written down in any manuscript or a part of the Bible or in reference to the church, actually referenced an assembly, meaning it was kind of a gathering. It was an invitation-only sort of thing. Um, that same word in the Hebrew language is used... When Moses comes out of the desert, he goes back into Egypt and he meets with his brother Aaron and says, Aaron, God spoke to me out of a bush that was burning but not consumed. And so Moses and Aaron talk and then Aaron says, 
all right, I think God's spoken to you, so let's gather the elders of our people together. And in the Hebrew, it says they, they uh, assembled those elders. They had an assembly. And so the word church has that designation. And it also means kind of a congregation, what we are today. But then later on in Paul's writings, and even when Jesus references it twice, it means the church. Why would we use that word, called out, ecclesia, an assembly, a special invitation to carry forward through 2,000 years the history of what we do? See, you may not know it, but you coming here at any four of those locations, sitting in one of these chairs, has been called out. Maybe God is calling you out right now. Maybe you were invited by somebody and you've never been to an assembly, a gathering of the believers before, and God is in the process of calling you out. So you'll notice in the notes, under those three points, we also have some subpoints that says when it works and why sometimes it doesn't always work. And so we're going to be very honest. You've come to an imperfect church. If you were looking for a perfect church, even if this was a perfect church, by nature of you showing up, Right? But isn't that what our hope is? Is that we cling to a God who uses the imperfect to carry out his perfect will? Right? Okay. So we've been called out. Maybe some of us have a story like the woman that was found written about in John chapter 8. Jesus was teaching. He had gathered an assembly of people looking to learn about what this young rabbi was saying. And then right in the middle of his teaching, as if somebody was to burst through the door and come up to the stage, there were people that dragged a woman into the front of that session and said, look, Jesus, we found this woman in the very act of breaking the law of Moses, committing adultery. One of the most shameful moments that could ever even take place. And they wanted Jesus to submit himself to the law, to rise up like a righteous rabbi and start condemning this woman, aligning himself with the law. But he didn't exactly do that. You remember what he did? He knelt down and in the most peculiar of all passages, he just simply wrote in the sand, and then he stands up and he says, he who is without sin, cast the first stone. And then he knelt back down, taking the attention away from this woman as everyone is staring at the ground and reading what he's writing. It never records what he wrote. But when he stood up next, no one was there to accuse her. And he said to the, to the woman, where are your accusers? And she said the obvious, they've all gone. He said, well, then neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. See, in that moment, Jesus was calling that woman out of a lifestyle and into the sacred assembly of what he would build with his disciples, the church, the ecclesia, those who have been called out of something. You know, it's interesting, we live in a day 
where the Bible is so discounted. And before we go into this, as I mentioned, we're tethered to something that has been around longer than what we have, longer than what this church has, longer than any of the buildings that we're meeting in this weekend. You know that there's 3,286 manuscripts of the New Testament that have been found and legitimized. Okay, 3,000 some odd manuscripts dating from back in the 200 AD, let's say, from that time forward. So ancient manuscripts. Okay, what does that mean, Evan? Well, let's compare that to any other piece of literature that is being, tr- being validated by finding the original copies. There's a story that Homer wrote. It's called the Iliad. That one is the second most copies exist. That one only has 665 legitimate ancient manuscripts attached to it. 665 compared to over 3,200. Also, people outside of the Bible wrote about the gathering of believers. So I just, I wrote down a quote. I want to read it to you. This is from a governor in the year 112 AD. He was the governor of what is now modern day Northwest Turkey. So this is the area where Paul went out and started planting churches. And then he went and he wrote letters to those churches. But all of that area was still under Roman rule and Christians were being persecuted. They had to hide those manuscripts. If they were found with those manuscripts, if they were found assembled together, they were risking their life. And this governor, Pliny, is his name. He worked for the emperor Trajan. And it was in the year 112, he was persecuting and executing Christians. And this is kind of his excuse for executing those Christians. Quote, they were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light, when they sang an anthem to Christ as God and bound themselves by a solemn oath not to commit any wicked deed, but to abstain from all fraud, theft, and adultery, never to break their word or deny a trust when called upon to honor it. Why you would want to kill people that were doing those things, I'm not sure. But those were the markings of people who were called out of the world. And even back then, there was a distinction made between the Christians and non-believers. Okay, so that's when it works. When we experience Jesus, when we encounter his grace that surpasses all understanding and we're called out of the world. But why doesn't it always work? Why sometimes is there an effort to uh, give our lives over to Christ and jump in and join the church, but then not everybody stays connected? Well, it doesn't always work because let me give you an analogy uh, that happened to me. I have my son, Reagan, he's uh, the fourth of five kids that we have. So we're, we're busy. Uh, it's a crazy life. But uh, Reagan is almost two. And he came up to me and uh, he was asking to be held. And so I reached down and picked him up. And then in that moment realized why he wanted me to hold him. Because he had filled his diaper. And I was like, okay, let's do this. And so I went over to start changing his diaper. And then when I 
got all of it set out and did it as a skilled father, which is always like so much worse than skilled mothers. So it just takes me, Emily can be done with that and just like, wow, I thought you, you know. So I'm in this process with Reagan, changing his diaper. And he decides that he's gonna just start kicking and screaming. And I was like, you're the one that came to me and asked to get changed and now you're kicking and screaming. And right in that moment, God said, Evan, isn't that how you interact with me sometimes? When I am parenting and fathering my children, even in the hectic moments, moms get this. Life is crazy. Life is hectic. In that hecticness, God can speak to you. Changing diapers, doing dishes, putting the kids to bed, getting them ready for school, all of that. God is a speaking God. And he said, Evan, that's how you interact with me sometimes. You come to me and you want to get changed. You want to be changed. And I start changing you and you start kicking and screaming. Right? And so when we're called out of the world and our desperate cry is, God, change me. I want to be changed. And then he starts changing us and we're like, whoa, I didn't want to hear that this weekend. I don't know if I really believe that concept yet. And we take off and we wander back into the world because Hebrews 12.1 tells us that there's sin that so easily entangles, right? And I think we can all relate to that, that at certain points in our life, we're doing great. And then sin, just like a vine around our ankle, just grabs us, slows us down, pulls us back. So we're called out. We're also called together. You know, when it when it works, there's a good example of this. I'm not going to go there now, but Acts chapter four talks about that first church. They gathered together. They shared meals together. They shared their possessions. When anybody was in need, they took care of it. They took care of the widows. They took care of the orphans. They did very, very well together. Uh, there's an example I was reminded of uh, over the holidays. There's a family that comes to our church and they're connected to us and they were going through a rough time and there was um, a lack of uh, ability to work, some medical situations, and they had decided that they were gonna have to tell their kids, hey, Christmas is gonna be different this year. We can't expect it to be what it's been like in the past. We're struggling, we're gonna try to do the best we can, but I just want you to know that it's not, well, we found out about that. And the staff, the pastors, they reached out. We reached out to the people that we were connected with, leaders in the church, and we said, hey, there's a family here that we would like to bless. We just left it up to them. We created some lists that matched up with who uh, they were and the ages and um, what they would like. Man, they had one of the best Christmases they ever had. We took care of their bills during that time. We blessed them. They came back and they were crying and saying, thank you. That's when the church works, when somebody's connected and we can respond. Not just staff, everybody responding to maybe even the person sitting next to you. See, but when we're called together, it doesn't always work. An example of that is the church at Corinth. 
Church at Corinth, this was a major city. They were, it was a port city, land ports and sea ports. And it was a hustle and bustle. And everybody there probably owned a business or was working all day for businesses. Well, uh, as the church came together, Paul says uh, in Corinthians, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he talks about um, the fact that they would come together, but some people would get there uh, before, the, before they, the official start time and they'd eat all the food and they'd drink all the wine and then the people that got off work later would come, there'd be nothing left and they would start fighting. You know, have you ever experienced that? Maybe not so much at a church gathering, but like at a family reunion. <laughs> you know, there's always the people that show up late and it's like, are we really gonna wait for them? Come on, I'm starving. So it doesn't always work. Now, when we're called together, I, I brought something to share with you guys today. Um, it's, a, it's a Thomas Kincaid puzzle. And I think it represents well our called togetherness. Meaning, I think for the majority of us, we come to church and we're satisfied being in the same box. Because we're together, Right? We're to, I, I made it to church this weekend. We're together. But if we take, let's say, one of these pieces out of here and hold it up, and I'm not going to ask the camera to zoom into this, but you can imagine it's one piece of a thousand piece puzzle. If I stared at this, I could maybe guess I'd go back and forth. I'd, I'd look at this picture and then I'd look at this one little piece. But, you know, for, for really the best guess, I, I don't know if this is up. I don't know if this is up. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? I don't know what this is a picture of until I find that which it's supposed to be connected to. Because once we actually start connecting these pieces, then we start to understand what we look like. And so these pieces probably connect, let's say on average, to maybe four, five, six other pieces around it. You know what the church would look like? See, here's, let me give you an example. Here's uh, three that are... Um, connected together. And one of those is a border piece. If I was going to do this puzzle, if we were going to do this puzzle right now, this would be a good one to start with, right? It's the border and there's three. So that gives us an idea of what we're looking at. But I think sometimes we settle for just being in the same box together. But sometimes all it takes is joining yourself with two other pieces, two other people, two other couples getting together and your story is similar to their story and your fears are similar to their fears and we start encouraging each other in that way. So why it doesn't always work? It's because we come together, but we don't really come together. The third one is we're called for something. I, I wrote down here, when it works, Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a great story. The Israelites had been held captive for many decades and they were 
eventually released to go back into their land, back to Jerusalem and reestablish the city of God there. Nehemiah wasn't back in Jerusalem, but he heard word about how everybody was getting along and he heard that the wall was torn down. So this great city actually wasn't really being rebuilt and most people were living outside of the city because the city was in ruins. And all of a sudden, Nehemiah felt like he was called for something. Long story short, he goes back there. He gathers everyone together. And he says, this is what we're gonna do. We're not gonna let the city of God lie in ruins. We're gonna take even the rubble that's around here, even the bricks that were torn down, and we're gonna reestablish the wall. But that was a great task. You know, they didn't expect that it was even possible. Other people would have done it if they thought it was possible. They didn't think it was possible. Nehemiah set out to do that good work, and you know how fast he did it? 52 days built a whole wall around a whole city in 52 days. But it didn't come without distraction. So when we're called to something great, as we as a church are called to participate in something great, carry the message of reconciliation to the world, talk about grace, talk about mercy, be the light of Christ, in this world, well, why doesn't it always work? You know, when, when Nehemiah was building that wall, the surrounding leaders in the cities started to think, wow, if, if they establish this wall, then they're going to maybe raise an army. They're gonna expand their territory. They started getting mad. They started getting scared. And then they started to see if they could get Nehemiah off the wall. So they sent letters, they sent messengers. They actually pleaded with Nehemiah, hey, come out to the valley. You know what the valley was called? The Valley of Ono. <laughs> <laughs> so when you find that which you've been called for, I'm gonna tell you this, that the enemy is gonna send distractions your way and keep you from putting brick after brick. Sometimes you're in a great endeavor, but it doesn't necessarily look that way because you're just doing one brick at a time. It doesn't look like it's something grand because you're so focused on it, but you're part of a great work. But you being part of a great work, once you've decided that you're gonna be called out of this world, that you're gonna gather yourself together in the body of Christ and really commission, be commissioned to carry the message of the gospel, however you do it, you might not do it as a missionary. You might do it from one cubicle to the next. You might do it from one place of work to the next. You might do it from one employee to the next. However you do it, you're laying one brick at a time and the enemy's gonna come at you and say, hey, 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 let's talk about this. Come on down over here. I don't know if this is a good idea. You know, if you build a wall, this guy's gonna be upset and you don't want him thinking this about you, right? It doesn't work sometimes to be called for because we get off the wall and we go to the Valley of Ono and we talk to those people. See, um, one, one of my other sons, Ethan, he's five, but when he was three, he heard the, the story of David and Goliath for the first time. Ethan's my kid that's like, just, you know, he's, he's gonna go out 
and do something and not really think about it. He's just going to get it done. And so he hears this story about David killing this giant, but he also knew that David, when he was just a shepherd, killed a lion and killed a bear by himself. And so he was pretty thrilled about this story that he heard in kids' church. And he comes up to me one time, I'm standing in the kitchen. He walks up to me, he goes, this is a three-year-old. He goes, dad, I need you to drive me into the mountains. I was like, okay, why do we need to go to the mountains? Right now? He's like, right now, Dad, I need you to drive me into the mountains. Okay, uh, what are we going to do there? You want to go for a hike? You want to go fishing? What, like, what do you want to do? He's like, I need you to take me into the mountains because I need to go kill a lion and a bear. <laughs> I need to fight him. I need to fight him. I want to be just like David. I was like, that's awesome. That is awesome. And then it was only a couple days later. We didn't, we didn't actually, I told him, hey, we're not going to the mountains today. And he was, he was three, so he forgot about it, right? So a couple days later, it's one of those days where it's like, okay, kids, you need to go outside. Like, get, just get your energy out, you know? So I, he was, I, I told him, hey, just go out into the backyard. He goes to the sliding glass door and he looks out in the backyard. I was like, come on, just go out there and play for a little bit. Because I I can't go out there by myself. I was like, it's our backyard. He goes, there's squirrels out there. <laughs> and in that moment, God just pounded me. And he was like, Evan, isn't that you? Isn't that how we do things? Isn't that us? Man, one day we're like, I can take on the world. I can do this. I can change the world for Christ. I can confront my enemies. I can cut that vine of the sin that so easily entangles and I can do this. I can change it. I can go for it. And then it's just one little tiny thing that holds us back and slows us down. I'm like, squirrels? And God's like, yeah, you've been scared of squirrels too. Honest to God, I have not done things because I've been scared of stepping out in the boldness of the faith that God's given to me. So why doesn't it always work? Sometimes we get scared. So that's hope found in the people of God. I'm going to move on real quick to hope found in the house of God. Now, I found a reference to the house of God that precedes even the tabernacle or the temple and for sure precedes the formation of the church. It's found in Genesis chapter 28. Let's just read this and we'll tell the story. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, what an awesome place this is. This is none other than the house of God. And the next one, if it'll come up, I'll read to you. Sorry, not that one. Okay, let me, let me read to you Genesis 28, 16, 17. Just write that down. I'll read that again. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, what an awesome place this is. This is none other than the house of God. And this last sentence, this is the gate of heaven. In this 
story. Jacob is traveling. He falls asleep. He uses a stone as a pillow. He has a dream about angels ascending and descending on this stairway that reaches from the earth up to heaven and back. When he wakes up, he renames the place where he slept, Bethel, Bethel. Beth meaning house, El meaning God. He renamed that place, the house of God. In those verses right there are characteristics that mark and should mark the house of God. Wouldn't it be awesome if we could say, us individually and us as we invite our friends to church, participate in events and come on the weekends, wouldn't it be awesome if we could say, surely the Lord is in this place. This is an awesome place. And this is the gateway to heaven. See, I think this, when the people of God respond to those three callings that were called out, were called together, and were called for, then all of a sudden, the house of God has those markings on it. The presence of God, the activity of God, the life of God, and a connection that people would say, I'm coming back here because I don't know exactly what happened, but I felt like I got a little taste of heaven, right? You know what's awesome? I've heard people say that in their own language when they visit our four campuses. I've never been to a place like this. This is awesome. I heard God for the first time. I'm coming back next week. His present presence, his holiness, and his gateway. Now, I think that's neat when we talk about the house of God. But you know what's interesting? I found this in Acts chapter eight. I'm gonna read this to you. This is, uh, I got a new Bible. I say this every time. Um, Get in the word of God. Change your Bible every once in a while and it'll stir your devotional time to read more and to study more. This time I got the Holman Christian Standard Bible. It's a study Bible. Uh, It's awesome. I'm reading in Acts chapter seven. And this is when Stephen gave his speech. There's not enough time to go into that. But he says this. However, the Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands. Well, what are you talking about, Evan? You just, you just told us that the presence of God is in the house of God. But then Stephen says that the Lord doesn't dwell in sanctuaries made by human hands. So there's a twist there. And the twist is this, that the whole Old Testament foreshadowed a fact that we participate in today, which is this. We are his sanctuary. We are his temple. And all of that that Jacob proclaimed about Bethel, the house of God, is true about us, that we carry his presence. We carry his presence. But Evan, I'm not perfect. I'm far from it. I'm not perfect either. But our hope is found in the fact that God uses the imperfect to carry out his perfect plan. Now, sometimes in closing, this is, I'd like to have the worship teams at all campuses come on up and get ready. 
we talk about the end of the book and we know the end of the story and we win. How many times have we heard that? A lot. Let me read to you Revelation 21, three through four. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer because the previous things have passed away. That's awesome. That's incredible. Don't you think that that's what that woman who was completely embarrassed thought she was going to be stoned to death on that very spot? If she were to describe Jesus to us today, if we invited her up onto the stage and said, Please tell us everything you know about that man named Jesus. He would, she would say, he's more kind than I could ever even tell you. And you know what? He said that one day he's going to wipe away every single tear. And we get to be a part of that. Amen. Heavenly Father, we come before you. We're so grateful that you have called us out. We're so grateful that you have called us together to participate in this life together with our friends and that you've called us for something that's great. And God, we carry that hope, not as perfect people, but the hope that you use the imperfect to carry out your perfect plan that one day, God, when you reign and rule on this earth, that you will do it in the same compassionate way that you interacted with that woman, that you will wipe away every tear. And so God, we lift up the needs of this church at all four locations for anyone who's come in today needing your compassion, not more condemnation, needing your grace, needing your mercy. God, we love you and we praise you. God, for those of us who have been running away from squirrels, God, we ask that you would give us courage to do that which you've called us for. Breathe your Holy Spirit into us. Use us, God. We submit once again to you. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. amen.